Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you as we start the new year here at Revolution. I hope that your Advent seasons went well uh, when we weren't meeting um, on Christmas Day, and I hope that your New Year's celebrations were hopeful and joyful, and I hope that eight days now into 2023, you haven't, like it all hasn't fallen apart, right? Uh, that you still have a little bit of optimism um, in your pocket, because we're going to try and do something with that today. So this morning, we're kicking off uh, a new series here at Revolution, which is also our key theme for the year. Um, if you've been around for a while, you know that every year we have a theme that guides our teaching um, all through the, the calendar. And this year, the preaching team and I spent quite a bit of time trying to come up with something catchy to call what we're covering this year. But at the end of the day, we sided with our friend Travis, who said, and I quote, sometimes we call a thing what we call it because that's the kind of thing that it is. If you know Travis, is exactly what he would say. And so 2023 is going to be a year about discipleship um, because that's the thing that it is. But there's a funny thing about discipleship, which played no small part in that debate in that preaching team meeting. And the funny thing is that discipleship, as it turns out, is not a real word. So given that I used to be an English teacher, this is deeply troubling to me to make our year focused on something that is not a word, Um, which might surprise you. It's true. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary includes entries at this point for sus, uh, for Bitcoin, for metaverse, but even after 2,000 years, even after 2,000 years, there is still no entry for discipleship. We've got disciple, right? That's one who accepts and accepts I'm sorry, that's one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrines of another. We have catechesis. That's a system of religious teaching or training, but there is no discipleship. So, that gives us a problem to solve, right? At least conventionally, what does that word mean? Well, once upon a time, when I was first hired at Revolution as an executive pastor, it was my my job, one of the first jobs I was given, to find exactly that out. Um, I was placed in charge of what was called discipleship ministries by the lead pastor at the time. And so I thought the same thing you're probably thinking. I should know what that word means if I'm in charge of it. And so I went to the library. Is that what I did? Like a real library? I think it is. Because I don't think I wanted to spend a lot of money at a bookstore. So I think I did go to a library. And I started checking out books on discipleship. And what I learned was that discipleship is supposed to mean a systematized process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. That's how people talk about it. A systematized process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. In other words, it's this process by which we're all supposed to become better Christians. But I also learned in all those books that nobody seems to know what they're talking about and no one seems to have quite figured out how to do that. There are a lot of books that will tell you that discipleship is the key to a healthy church. I read a bunch of those super important. There are other books that will flip it and say that a healthy church makes discipleship a priority, but nobody's saying in clear and workable terms, this is how you do it. And the reason seems to be that there is something inherently non-systematic about the thing that it is we're looking for. And I would argue that that actually shouldn't surprise us. After all, we all know that a person can read his or her Bible every day and still know very little about God. And we also know probably from our own experiences, right, that we can pray 
every morning and every evening like clockwork and still have a cold heart towards our neighbors. We know that we can do church every Sunday. We can volunteer at the local homeless shelter. We can give all of our money away and still, at the end of the day, look almost nothing like Jesus to our family and our friends. And perhaps that's because deep in our hearts, we can sense that what it means to be a real disciple, which we can identify, right? A disciple would be somebody who looks like Jesus, who's known for being gracious and kind and generous and forgiving and compassionate and steadfast and faithful. We can sense in our hearts that what it means to be a real disciple is not something that we're supposed to be able to ship or supposed to be able to turn into a process. At the end of the day, something's got to happen in our hearts. Otherwise, we're just doing an empty performance. And so if that's true, then that obviously creates a problem for us, right? Because if our theme is discipleship, this non-word, we're going to talk about it for the next 52 weeks. And we know that discipleship isn't something that we can actually systematize and make happen. Then that leads me with the problem of figuring out what it is we're talking about. Uh, for the I could, I've killed eight or eight or nine minutes here with this much, but like got a lot to go. And at the end of the day, what did Travis mean, right, when he convinced us to use this word? Because quote, we call a thing what we call it, because that's the kind of thing that it is. Well, actually, this is where my plan is frustrated. I expected him to be here, so I can just <laughs> ask him. But instead, I guess I'll offer an answer. I did prepare an answer in case he wasn't around. Here's what I'd say. Even though we cannot force a change of heart, either in ourselves or in anybody else, what we can do, what we can do is pay more attention to the sorts of rhythms, practices, and beliefs that help us maintain openness and humility before God. And when we are in the right kinds of spaces in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives, when we're in the right kinds of spaces to hear God's voice, what is stubborn and resistant in us gets exposed to the transforming, to the earth-shaking power of his grace and his love. So through these disciplines of discipleship, what we're doing is we are making ourselves vulnerable to his presence, which although his presence is always everywhere around us, I think all of us would say we have gotten pretty good over the course of our lives at learning how to avoid it. This means that all there, there is nothing that I or you or any of us can do to make ourselves better Christians. There are things that we can do to better see and confront what is unchristian in us, and that, I think, is the starting point for change. And more than that, it's the starting point for learning to trust in my relationship with the real person of Jesus, who, after all, is the guy that we're settling, or settling, the guy that we're setting out to follow, who's the guy who endlessly comes back to wherever we lose our way and waits for us to get back on the path again. So, that's our goal for this year. 
We're not going to do discipleship by coming up with the 10 steps to being a better Christian. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to spend the year exploring the things that distract us from our journey. Then we're going to learn some of the rhythms and practices and beliefs that can keep us open and humble along the way. And then we're going to celebrate the places that Jesus leads us when we're really able to make the time and create the space that we need to listen to him and follow him. So that's the plan. That's what we're going to do. All right, I think I'm... Maybe now I'm eight or nine minutes in, but I still have to start, right? It's pretty good, but like, what now? How do we start? That little joke there was a distraction because this paragraph, this next paragraph, um, was a chore. It's been a long time since I had to write and rewrite and rewrite a paragraph as much as this next one. And it's embarrassing to admit how simple the answer was once I finally allowed myself to see it because the paragraph turns out to just be two words. Those words are be still. Be still. Discipleship starts not with scripture, not with repentance, not even with grace, although it is grace that permits it. Discipleship starts with stillness. Because the Bible says it is stillness that can do three essential things for us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The first is that stillness surrenders control. The second is that stillness fosters listening. And the third is that stillness demonstrates trust. Surrenders control, fosters listening, demonstrates trust. So let's start with surrendering control. There are a tremendous number of examples of this happening in Scripture, but I've chosen to focus on the one that first sprang to mind for me this week, likely because it's one that is on my mind frequently that's Psalm 46. The 46th Psalm is attributed to David, who's the great king of ancient Israel, and it reads in its entirety as follows. It's also in your program there if you want to read along. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In the year 1529, the famed performer Martin Luther wrote a hymn based on this psalm and titled it, Ein Festeberg ist unser Gott, which is most often translated, anybody? Where are my German speakers? I don't speak it either. I'm glad none of you are in here because my pronunciation there was probably like really bad. But I, I fooled you because you don't know. That's great. 
Um, it's often translated, a mighty fortress is our God. If you grew up in a more traditional church, you've probably heard this song. And in six years, that song is going to celebrate its 500th birthday. We'll actually talk a little bit more about that idea in this hymn, that idea of a divine fortress, which concludes the psalm. We're going to talk about that here in a bit. But first, I want us to focus not on the refuge that the psalmist says that we are invited to inhabit, that fortress, but instead on the world that God tells the psalmist here that he wants us to witness. In verse 10, God interrupts the proceedings, right, to tell us the thing that we like to hear in that psalm, which is to be still, be still. But in that moment of stillness, what does the psalm say that we're meant to see? If we back up a few lines, right, in verses 8 and 9, the psalmist writes that we should, quote, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations that he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shield with fire. It's a bit of a strange passage, I think. I don't think we often think of God wanting us to see the desolations that he's brought on the earth. But it can be helpful, I think, to consider our context, right? Jewish Midrash tradition teaches that David, the the author of this psalm, composes this psalm in a moment after battle, specifically after his own armies had defeated one of the many enemies of Israel. And so in that context of after this battle where he's won, He looks over the battlefield, and who does he credit with making the wars cease? David says that in the stillness of the desolation, he sees that it was God's victory rather than his own. Which, so what? This seems to me like my my radar's up. I'm smelling like some convenient humility on the part of the victor here. But I don't think that's, as I look at it, I don't think that's the whole thing that's happening. Because if we continue backing up, what is it that David is actually contemplating before he thinks of that empty battlefield? If we go up to verse 2, he thinks of the sight of cliffs crumbling as mountains fall into the sea. In verse 3, he thinks of the roaring and surging oceans. In verse 4, he thinks of the way a river, in its steady flowing, nourishes the city. In verse 6, he thinks of the kingdoms rising and falling in distant lands that he had nothing to do with. He thinks perhaps, at the end of that verse, depending on how you read it, of volcanoes erupting and lava flowing into the sea. So what is his point? In the forced... Oh, Travis. (laughs) I needed you. I'm so sorry. That was really rude. <laughs> uh, you were a whole talking point a few minutes ago. I'll catch you up later. I'm sorry. <laughs> His point. His point in the forced stillness of this recently ended war, in the forced stillness, David is reminded not of his own victory in this battle or even God's help in that victory, but of the breathtaking scale of God's own power of the natural world. What is an army, even his army, no matter its victories, in comparison to an earthquake? You can't fight that off. It's nothing. David is nothing. In another psalm, Psalm 131, David writes this. He writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul 
like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. As the hero king of Israel, David, is tempted, of course, to busyness, tempted to pride. But what stands out in these psalms is his disciplined commitment to remembering his own limits. Stillness and bearing witness are the two things that make that that humility possible. Now, I know this is an unusual way to begin, like all the desolation and whatnot, but here is my point. Stillness before God, stillness before God leads to humility because in stillness we're confronted with the meager limits of what we actually have the ability to control. This past week, a movie came out on Netflix based on one of my very favorite books, which is a book called White Noise by Don DeLillo. I'm not recommending you watch this movie. It's not particularly good, although it's also in that zone where like, I love the book, and so is it like it. And whatever. You don't need to watch it. You can if you want. I'm not telling you what to do. But the thing, one thing that the movie does get right, I guess I would say, that echoes the book is maybe another way of putting it, is this. In a section titled Waves and Radiation, DeLillo, the author, contemplates how the constant busyness of our lives is really a strategy for maintaining the illusion of order and control (coughs) over death, over our fate. He fixates, as an example of this, on grocery stores, where we're bombarded with all these seemingly important choices. I mean, if you're like me and you go to the grocery store, you're like a bargain hunter. I'm like checking the little like buy unit prices and comparing them and like store brands and all that. All these choices, he says, we fill ourselves up. We fill up our minds and our time with all these choices. And in the book, the section ends with a character thinking to themselves like, I can't die, my pantry is full. And it's satire, right? But its point connects, I think, to part of what David is doing in these Psalms because even in victory, he's intentional about remembering that he's not in control, that this is the thing that stillness does. It turns down the volume of all of the choices that we are constantly giving ourselves to make so that we can stay busy, so that we can stay distracted, so we can fill up our lives with things that we think will make life worth living. Stillness pauses all of that and chooses instead to experience and understand the limits, our limits. Even more, and this is important, I think, practicing stillness always means choosing to do nothing instead of choosing to do something. It combats this temptation to believe that busyness is the point of all of this. And it reminds us, really, that we're children first. We're not gods ourselves. So then what, right? What does the choice to be still and the resulting awareness that we're not in control, because that's that first thing, right? Stillness surrenders control. What What does that create space for, according to Scripture? Well, the answer is that it creates space for us to know who is God if what we're learning when we are still is that we're not. In Psalm 46, he says, be still and what, right? And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So stillness surrenders control, and then what it does is it fosters listening. The reason is because we all struggle 
to be genuinely interested in things that we already think we know. I've said this here many times before, but one of my biggest weaknesses, I think, as a pastor is that I am often filling in the blanks in my conversations with other people, in my conversations with you guys. I seem like I'm listening. I'm trying my best to listen. But in my head, I'm already skipping ahead, right? I'm skipping ahead to diagnosing the problem that you're talking about or or working out how to be helpful or just thinking about what I might have to say next that connects in some way to what you're talking about. And it's not that those things that I'm doing are, are necessarily bad things to do, but they are busy things to do. And they take for granted that whatever you're saying, whatever the person I'm talking to is saying, is, is it going to surprise me? I'm turning the person into a problem to solve. And it's true that ultimately I, I need to repent of that. I need to repent of that arrogance. But it's also true that before I can even repent, I have to actually believe that what I'm doing is wrong. Stillness as a practice and a discipline, I think, is the antidote to that problem. Not just because it requires that I admit the limits of my control in the situation, which we just talked about, but because... Stillness alone can create the space that I need to actually listen. I have to stop, surrender control, pause the busyness, and hear somebody. And if that's true in my conversations with you, people that are like right here sitting across like a lunch table with me, how much more must that be true in my conversations with God? Because more often than not, I'm not having a real conversation with God. I'm talking at him, and then I'm waiting on him to give me just enough of a response to set me off to the races again, solving problems, fixing things. Like, well, really, like I'm the hero of the story. Like doing any of that stuff, like cutting him off and saying, like, I got this, and running off. Like doing that is going to impress him. Or even worse, like it's going to make him grateful for me. God says to David, God says to me, be still and know. Know that I'm in charge. Know that I'm more powerful than you are. Know that I'm more wise than you are. And know that I'm here with you anyways because you are already important to me. No matter what you're about to go do, no matter what heroic thing you're going to go solve. And here's the thing. I can't hear God tell me those things if I'm not listening. And I can't listen without being still. So stillness surrenders control. Stillness fosters listening. And stillness also demonstrates trust. That's the third thing. Let's go back and consider what it is that David wants in that psalm, right? As king of Israel and as a servant of God. In the very second psalm of scripture, which is the first psalm, coincidentally, that is attributed to David, whether it's the first one he wrote or not is inconsequential to our point. The point is the first psalm, if you're reading through the Bible that you come across that says David wrote it, here's what he says. He says, 
Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. From the beginning, David the human, David the king, his sights are set on bringing the nations around him and the kings of his world under God's banner and under God's control and authority. And that verse that he uses to kick off the first psalm that he writes is what it sounds like. It's a threat. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling. David, I think what we can take from that is that David is full of vigor and purpose about himself as much as he is about God. But what then does God say back to him? This guy who's so zealous to make everybody listen to his God. In the 46th Psalm, David, or God says this. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. I will be exalted. Be still. I will be exalted. Stillness is necessary not just for our humility, not just because it helps us listen, but because stillness forces trust. God will do it. He doesn't need you to do it for him. It's true that he may use you to carry out his purposes, but here's the thing that I think that psalm is challenging in David. It's forcing him to realize that we're not God's commissioned soldiers running out to change the world on his behalf. And I think as we move towards our ending this morning that this is actually where most of our attempts at discipleship go wrong. We, we want to learn how to be better Christians on our own. We want to, somebody to give us these like 10 foolproof steps that we can practice, that we can do, and then we can see our faith grow. And then that will make us happy, and that will make us holy. And at the end of all that, God will be impressed with us. But the whole point of being Christian, hear me, the whole point of being Christian is getting out of a performance-based economy. When we choose stillness, when we choose to do nothing instead of something, We're practicing trust in God to see his own plans through to their end. And this isn't easy to do. It's not comfortable to do. Because in that moment when we're choosing stillness, good things usually aren't happening. Things seem bad. That's what keeps us so busy. Things must have seemed bad to David. But God says, be still, I will. Being still is what we can choose to do if we really want to participate in God's kingdom rather than trying to build it for ourselves. So I said earlier that we would get back to the Martin Luther thing, right? Remember the bad German? I'm glad actually that Travis missed that part because he would have scolded me. But this bad German about God being our fortress. And here's the thing about that metaphor. The whole point of a fortress, the whole point of a fortress is to create space for stillness. Think about what they're for. Think about their purpose. Why do you wall things up like that? Why do you put all the energy into it? It's meant to relieve people 
of constantly worrying either about what you can go out into the fields and make for yourself or worrying about what people are going to be trying to take from you. And it does that. A fortress does that work by being trustworthy. If a fortress has big gaping holes in it, you're not going to be able to rest inside of it. But the idea here is, of course, that God doesn't have holes. That in him, in him, we have the comfortable space to pause, the place and space to be still. And when we make that choice to be still, we're choosing not to go out, not to do, not to assume, not to rush And at the same time, what we're also choosing is not to fight, not to worry, not to despair, not to be lonely. We're choosing not to go it alone. And we're starting with this point this year because our goal, our goal in 2023 as a church is to see real growth in our lives. We want this church, as as we've gone through this crazy journey that we've been on over the last, I'd say the last... Three years, let's really call it like the last 12 years. We want our church to be vibrant. We want this community to be active. We want to be on mission as a group of people. And we want to see real transformation in all of our lives. It would be, we're starting this way because it would be a huge mistake to try and start down that path, as good as that is, to try and start down that path on our own. Because it turns out that growth isn't something that we do. It's something that happens in us. We're not shipping it, right? We're becoming it. We're becoming disciples. So we're going to try and get down that path. We're going to start by talking about stillness. Not just talking about stillness, but practicing. Maybe for 15 minutes in the morning, right, as you go through the week ahead, practice stillness before that first cup of coffee. Maybe when you get home from work this week, practice stillness before starting dinner. That's, that's probably where I'm going to look for it because my family is tired of like ever, like the dinner time keeps moving up in the day because I'm restless to start cooking and now it's like 4.45 and we're eating dinner and they're like, please be still. Be still. Maybe for you it's before you go to bed when you turn off the show and make a point to pause and rest before you actually you know, lay down on the pillow. Whatever it is, make moments to be present, to be still and to be present. And we're going to get to action steps in the weeks ahead. There will be take-home homework, little challenges and things to work on, and all that's great. But this week, what we want is to begin with an inaction step. Create a rhythm of stillness in your life. I'll be the first to say that I am the number one hypocrite when it comes to this. I'm the most restless and busybody person. And so I'm preaching to myself today more than I'm preaching to anybody else. I feel weird even talking about it. And for me, the reason that I'm like this is fear. Fear that if I don't do it, it won't get done. Fear of failure, fear of disappointing people, fear of dinner not being ready when somebody wants it or something, I don't know. 
fear, failure, embarrassment, those things get in the way. Those are my go-to insecurities. And I'm not sure what stops you from stillness. But this morning, this week, let's try together. Let's actually try together to choose a different way. Let's be still so that we can know that he is God, that he is our fortress, that we can let go. And if we do, if we do that, I think we'll change. I think we'll feel change. And I think it might feel like having life to the fullest. We're going to receive communion in a few minutes. But before we get there, it feels right for us, after all of this, to take a moment and practice the thing that we're preaching. So we're going to participate together in one of the most ancient traditions in Christian liturgy, which is something called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina actually does have a dictionary definition, which is quite helpful. It means divine reading. It entails, quote, listening to scripture with the ear of the heart. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to read a passage, that passage from Psalm 46 aloud. And then we're going to sit with that passage for a few moments in silence. And in that time, what I'm inviting you to do is not to dissect what we read or to analyze what we read, but to simply be still with what you read and let it kind of work its way into your heart. And then consider what's true in it. Consider how it touches you. And then after a few minutes where we are thinking in that way on the text, I'll pray for us. And then we're going to have a second moment of silence in light of that prayer. And in this moment, we want to consider how we might live with the thing that we're hearing. So in silence one, we're just listening and letting things come in. And then in silence two, we're thinking about how it affects us or how it transforms us or changes or challenges us. At the end of all that, Sarah will come up and lead us in another time of worship. And at the end of our service today, Claire's going to come up and lead us into communion, which is how we'll close our time. And at the end of communion, after you've received communion, you've taken your time on your own, then you'll be able to like leave when you're ready. So we won't have like a big, everybody go. You can sit and go when you're ready. Does that make sense? Okay. I'll begin by reading. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.
God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for choosing to love us and to protect us. Thank you for creating this space for stillness here this morning. You are our fortress. We pray that you will train us in the discipline of being still this week. You'll train us in this discipline this year. We pray that you'll have mercy on us when we're distracted, that you will forgive us as you have promised to forgive us. We pray for growth and new life within us. We pray that you will transform us in new ways to not only bring light into our own lives, but also spread out to touch and bless the lives of others. We are yours. Let us rest in the peace of that discovery. In your son Jesus' name, amen.